So thank you, everyone. Thank you for the introduction. So it's wonderful to be here this morning with you. Um, beautiful day. And um, we've been on a retreat over the last several days talking about psychology and Buddhism, right? And so I was also asked then to do this uh, Sunday Dharma talk. And I thought it would be good to kind of incorporate some of what we've been talking about into uh, this talk, right? So let me just get underway because um, we have time schedules here, okay? <laughs> you know, being, uh, having been a professor for a long time, I've never had a class that was only 35 minutes. So <laughs> I'm gonna watch my time here and try to uh, stay on course. So when people talk about psychology and Buddhism, a lot of people think, well, this relationship just seems absolutely perfect. I mean, it should fit hand in glove. You know, psychology studies the mind, right? That's one way in which we look at it. And Buddhism studies the mind. So yeah, they go together, right? Um, even we have some Buddhists who have thought, it would go together. So much that declarations that Buddhism would enter the West through psychology, right? encouragement of people in the sciences, the neurosciences, and in psychology to actually take up the banner of studying the meditative mind. Right? And so what we've seen over the last couple of decades, and particularly this last decade, is just so much work within the field of psychology and looking at how it is psychologists can use, and, and some of it goes earlier on, but particularly using Buddhism in the therapeutic process. There's a long history of that. You know, at this point, mindfulness is like a, a household term, okay? And people are using all of these different techniques. But as I said, it's also opened the door to uh, a great amount of research. And so there are many psychologists out there who have written books, published works, uh, they run trainings, just all kinds of things that are being done with Buddhism. Uh, within psychology. So great, great, great benefit. Uh, but then I sit back and I wonder, how has Buddhism benefited? Right. So I, I'm clear many times how psychology has benefited, but how has Buddhism benefited? Has it been a one-way street? Right. We hear the word appropriation all of the time. What's going on? So I, I want us to think about that, and I'm going to address those questions as uh, I go on. Uh, but before I direct, uh, address them directly, I want us to understand the academic science, the area of academic science, uh, from the perspective of Wan Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And to do that, certainly we go to the canon, we go to the scriptures, right? and they help us. Right? So in particular, the scripture that first and foremost comes to my mind uh, is from the founding master uh, in the way of humanity. And in this particular scripture, he outlines the roots and the branches. 
and helping us to understand that you have to know the roots and exert effort regarding the root, then the branches will naturally turn out well. And if you kind of follow, I've, I certainly I've bolded the parts that are germane, most germane in here, but the, the whole uh, verse is, it says, for the world, study of the way is primary, as in the root. Mm -hmm. And the sciences are secondary, as in the branches. Okay? And that's essential to know and to understand. Let's see, I'm still, I've been here for I don't know how many days, and I still don't have the hang of this uh, mechanical stuff. Okay, um, so part of keeping that in mind, I have to talk about the field of psychology in particular, as I know that most intimately, but certainly science. Um, and at this point, what we find is that psychology is kind of steering the boat when it comes to Buddhism in, in relation to the therapeutic use, the research that's being done. And what you'll find sometimes if you've looked at that literature, and although there are some big names that we are familiar with, some of whom have studied Buddhism, trained in Asia and other places, but there's a whole lot of other research out there also where people have not trained in Buddhism. People are not familiar. And so when they're doing the research and they're employing the techniques and what have you, there may not be a Buddhist on board the ship, okay, that's guiding and directing what's being done. And so what has happened sometimes in that research is it's like a hodgepodge mixed match of things. And they're mixing different techniques and different ways of doing things, different sects, and in the end, and if you understand research, it is very then hard to understand the results of your data and to draw appropriate conclusions. And so what you find is that a very small portion of the research that's out there right now is research that we can kind of say, okay, they went the right way on it. They actually studied what they said they wanted to study. And that's extremely important in terms of what we call the research enterprise. I like, I like that terminology, the research enterprise, right? Uh, the, the other thing that you'll find in this literature it's kind of an erasure of its Asian roots as well as its African roots. Mm -hmm. That in fact, many times, the concepts, the practices, the teachings are used without even using the word Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Like many people don't know that mindfulness is associated with Buddhism. And that's not to mean that Buddhism owns it, okay? Because we don't, right? Because we're not attached like that, right? <laughs> so we don't own it, right? Other people can certainly use it, right? But what we do know is a lot of where this has come from, and usually and especially in the academic arena, you must give credit, right? Otherwise, what, what do we call that when we don't give credit in the academic arena? Plagiarism. 
plagiarism is a felony in college, okay? You can be <laughs> expelled for that, okay? You do that, you know, not the first time, but you can, okay? Disciplinary actions can be taken. It is stealing, right? So you must give credit, okay? And I'm not suggesting that everybody who's not giving credit is necessarily stealing, because what happens over time is that as literature is published, and then we go back and we research that literature, if it's not mentioned in that literature, then we may not mention it in ours. And so over time, there's that erasure that can occur. And so it's very interesting. And then there's a lot of literature out there now that also speaks to the quote unquote Americanizing, right? And, and I'm always at a loss as to what that really means, okay, on some level, okay? But that's another talk for another time, okay? <laughs> but, but this uh, Americanizing of Buddhism and what many people are writing about is that this retrofitting it has made it re ready for only certain segments of the population. And they're the ones that are often showcased. And so what people have talked about is that now Buddhism is primarily for middle and upper class white women. And they're on all the covers of the magazines that you'll see around Buddhism and sometimes the books that you'll see in Buddhism. And it's like, okay, where are other people are certainly benefiting from this and practicing it. And so what's happening, right? And so I, I leave you kind of with this question that, that, that I want us to address is, can psychology legitimize Buddhism? Because that's part of what research is about. And research is what makes psychology psychology. If we did not conduct experimentation, we would be philosophy. Okay. So the cornerstone of psychology is that it does research. Mm -hmm. Married to mathematics, we test theories and we find out if we can support it or not. That's what makes psychology psychology. And as I said, not philosophy. So I'm answering the question and, I, and I'm saying, it is not for psychology to legitimize the practice or study of Wan Buddhism or any other forms of Buddhism. And I'm going to talk about why not, okay, why it's not. So psychology is an academic science, right? And being as such, it's limited. And it's limited by its own definition. Mm -hmm. um, therefore, as I'm saying, it cannot be an omniscience. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. But because we do experimentation in psychology, we have some rules. Only that which is measurable is what we study. And if you can't measure it, we can't study it. In fact, not only will we say we can't study it, we will say it does not exist. Okay. So anything dealing with spirit does not exist, okay? Because it cannot be measured, okay? We want to reduce things to numbers. Because remember I said, we are a product of philosophy, but we're married to mathematics. 
So we have to be able to analyze the data to draw conclusions. Did we support our hypothesis or did we not? And we do that through the scientific enterprise, right? And so that's why I'm saying that the academic sciences, particularly psychology, as I'm talking about, is limited by its own definition. Mm -hmm. And thus it is not an omniscience. But despite that, there's an awful lot of research that we'll conduct um, and have conducted in relation to Buddhism, right? But as I said, the results are limited mm -hmm. by its very nature. Mm -hmm. So what I'm presenting to you though is that Wan Buddhism is a sacred science, right? an omniscience. Mm -hmm. What do I mean by that? So one of the places I want you to look, of course, is in the darkened area. And this is coming from Shekamani Buddha, um, sutra in 42 sections. And at the end of this sutra, it says, from the time before heaven and earth up until today, there has never been a case in all the 10 directions of something that one has not known, seen, or heard. Obtaining such omniscience is what is called illumination. Mm -hmm. Obtaining such omniscience is what is called illumination. So this is similar. I make a connection to Master Sodasan with the primary, the secondary, and really the root. Mm -hmm. The root. And so within that, what I want us to do is to talk a little bit more deeply about omniscience, right? So when we talk about omniscience, we're talking an all-knowing science. We're not just talking about the cognitive knowing, the academic knowing by virtue of hypothesis testing, logic, rational thinking. Right? In fact, what we're talking about gives birth to that. Right? It eludes it on some level. It both supersedes and subsumes it. Right. Primary, secondary, root, branches. Okay. So it's revealed to us in meditation, riddles, uidus, as we talked about, right. other practices. And it's made practical, and this is what's really important about Wan Buddhism. It's made practical by threefold study and practice. Omniscience also speaks to the mystery of life, the irrationality of its origin. And I want you to, to think about that word irrationality because there are certain words that we tend to connote negativity with and we see it as less than. So it's like logic, emotion. <laughs> Emotion's bad, logic's good. <laughs> Rational's good, irrational is bad. No, 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 They're, they all have their appropriate places, right? This is why people are talking about left and right brain now, because for so long they depended on the logic of things. And they realized, oh, emotion is important too. We need the entire brain. Well, we need rational and irrational too, all right? 
And so what we do know is that the mystery of life is understood in revelation, illumination, mm -hmm. not in logic and rationalization alone. It can't be. Mm -hmm. and, and again, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more as we go on. Certainty is by faith. Right? And it is realized experientially. Right? Again, Sheikh Amana Budi said this to us, right? Test it for yourself. See if it works. Mm -hmm. So academic sciences quite often speak to cognitive processes. Right? You know, how the mind works. Right? Mm -hmm. Logic. And sacred science, Buddhism, speaks to also the spiritual secrets, if you will. And, and here, what, what secret means is that you just don't know. But you can know. You just don't know. Okay? That's what secret means here. Okay? Okay? And so what I think about then when I'm thinking about the irrationalities, the mysteries, the secrets, I go back to the Ilwan San vow, right? And uh, I look at the Ilwan San vow, and I've only uh, typed in the first line and the second line of it, right? And can we read it together at the count of three? Okay. One, two, three. Ilwan is the rim of samadhi, beyond all words and speech, the great way of birth and death that transcends being and non-being, the original source of heaven and earth, parents, fellow beings, and laws, and the nature of all Buddhas, enlightened masters, ordinary humans, and sentient beings. We deluded beings make this vow so that by progressing rather than regressing and receiving grace rather than harm, we may obtain the awesome power of Ilwan and be unified with the substance and nature of Ilwan. Academic sciences, psychology, with its current research methodology, lacks the capacity to explain Ilwan. And I'm not proclaiming that. I'm saying that's what the field says. Mm -hmm. So I, I've studied psychology at this point and or taught it for more than 40 years. Mm. Wan Buddhism, maybe about 15 Okay, so uh, in psychology, of course, I would be considered an expert. With Wan Buddhism, I say I have some level of experience. Okay, so I'm speaking from a vantage point that when I look at what we just read together, psychology cannot explain that mm. and would say it doesn't exist. <laughs> How would you measure Ilwan? when Ilwan gave birth to measurement. <laughs> so, hmm, interesting, okay. So, how has Buddhism benefited psychology, right? There have been some benefits, 
right? Um, oh, but did I write that wrong? It should be how a psychology benefited Buddhism, right? Sorry, reverse it, okay? I was seeing if you were on your toes and nobody caught it, okay? <laughs> so greater acceptance, visibility, increased membership in terms of, you know, Buddhism. I mean, we basically, this country is built on what we call white Anglo-Saxon Protestants that are typically male, able-bodied, heterosexual. That is the foundation, right? And many of the institutes support that reality. And so when we understand that and we look at what has happened politically in the country over the years, uh, all kinds of things to keep Buddhism out of the country and other such religions, Protestantism is the foundation of this country, whether we recognize it or not. And so when we recognize that, then what we know is about 50 years ago, I, I, no, not even 50. Okay, let me, let me bring it more up to date. Let's say 30 years ago, I could not have started my class with a moment of meditation. Okay. I may have been able to sneak it in with a moment of silence, <laughs> which initially I started doing that. We're just going to have a moment of silence. Okay. I could not have stood up and said, let's do some Qigong. Let's do some Tai Chi. Okay. You know, um, it would have been more difficult, okay, even at the collegiate level. Okay. And so in psychology, we call this kind of, we used to call it parapsychology. Okay. So kind of like a paralegal, you're not really the lawyer, so that's not really psychology. Okay. So with psychology, now talking about and using this, these techniques, these concepts, what we find then is that there is greater acceptance and people are even interested. People are coming to temples and want to know about, what is this? Can I use it for my back pain? Okay, all kinds of things we come up with, right? And then there is some academic research, but I told you you have to be very... On some level, you almost have to be a researcher yourself to be able to know if the research is good or not, okay? So we're trained. I know how to conduct research. Therefore, I know how to look at an article and know if the research is good and I can trust it or not, okay? And unfortunately, you know, most people, they're not trained in that manner, and so they don't know if this is a good study or not. And therefore, they might assume that it is when it's not, because I'm telling you probably 95% of the studies are not good <laughs> in this area. Okay. And, and, and there are some researchers who are out there who, in fact, will tell you that as well. They've written books about how poor the research is. Okay. I'm trying to think of the name of the one that I most recently read, Altered States. I think was the name of it, okay? Um, but there's potential here, right? There's potential that, I think we call it participant-based research, right? This had been a, a problem in psychology that this notion of being an expert, and, and I'm, I just wanna 
Okay, good. I'm, I think I'm in good timing. I just want to take a moment to, to help us to understand what it means to have a terminal degree in an area like psychology, right? So having a PhD in psychology, uh, your degrees get more narrow as you go up. Your bachelor's degree is what's considered your breadth degree, right? You take courses throughout the academy. And then once you finish that breadth degree, you move into a master's degree, but it's only in your area, okay? And many times, even within psychology, you select an area in psychology that you're going to specialize in, right? And then with a PhD, again, only in your area, you could switch areas, like my master's degree is in clinical psych, and then I switch to social psychology, okay? But my research within the area of social psychology is where you have your greatest expertise. So although people consider you're, you an expert, you're not an expert not only not on everything in the whole wide world, okay, <laughs> but not even in your own field for real because you can't be. There, there's just so many theories out there, okay? I mean, the best you can do, it's like being, a, you know, we use the term kumanine, the teacher. The best way you learn psychology is to teach it. Okay. So I probably have a little bit more expertise along with other professors of psychology mm -hmm. because you study it more because you teach it. But most people, after they finish their degree, they're finished, and unless they're licensed, they may not have to take any more courses. Now, it behooves you to keep yourself abreast on what's going on in your field, okay? But we know how sometimes that can work. So one of the things that's changed in research is because you don't know everything, and we're going out there doing all of this research, it wasn't always really working. So people begin doing what they kind of call participant-based research, where you bring in the group of people that you're interested in doing research on and involve them in designing the study you're going to conduct. Because many times they're the expert. And you're going to learn from them what you need to do. Now, you have the expertise in terms of how to conduct research that they may not have. But the subject matter, they've lived it. Okay? And so they lend themselves. So what I'm suggesting on some level, potentially, the role that Buddhism and, and those who study it diligently and understand it in terms of its study and practice may be able to shepherd psychologists. Right now, psychologists, they're steering the boat. But unfortunately, sometimes they're not exactly certain they don't have the right compass. So I don't know, they may end up like Columbus. I don't know. Someplace wrong where they thought they were someplace else, right? So, and that's what's happening. What I can say for me personally, uh, after I said having studied uh, psychology and taught it for so long, um, and then looking at other philosophies uh, that un can undergird psychology, and then studying Wan Buddhism, 
one of the things that I can say personally that's happened is the question of who am I and how I answer that question. That's one of the reasons why I started studying social psychology, right? Because I was interested in that question and it falls under the area of social psychology. The self falls under social psychology. But the way I studied that within psychology for a number of years is different than what I came to know later as I looked at other philosophies that talked about interconnectedness and interdependence. And I'm talking about the philosophies of our ancient ancestors, you know, those coming out of Kemet, uh, what people readily refer to uh, in terms of his common day name, Egypt, right? And um, so I begin to understand the answer to that question differently and the, and the multi-dimensionality of it, right? That, yeah, you know, I'm going to leave here in a few hours and it's only going to be me who get in my car and drive home, okay? And I'm Linnell and I respond to that name. I understand that, right? But I also understand that I am inextricably connected to everybody and everything. Here, gone before, yet to come, all of it. Okay? Ilwan. Okay? I understand that. What I also came to understand, and it took me a while, that I can actually study my own mind. Okay? Being steeped within psychology, you are taught you cannot study your own mind. The hallmark of science is to be objective. That is the rule of science. You must be, you know, I, I, I teach my students that, uh, you know, the commercial, they used to have this old commercial for Crest toothpaste, and they say four out of five dentists <laughs> suggest that you should use Crest, right? And, and if you're watching the commercial, you think, oh, this is great. I, I'm going to go out and buy Crest. But then if later they tell you that the four dentists that said Crest is good also had stock in the Crest company, hmm, <laughs> can I really trust this? Were they objective or should they have excused themselves from that research? <laughs> See, in science, in psychology, that's what we would say. Ah, I'm not sure I can trust this, okay? So this objectivity is seen as being so important for us to trust the findings. And if you're not objective, you are not conducting research. That's how we are taught. So you cannot study your own mind because you cannot be objective in doing that. So as psychologists, what we're taught is not how to study our own minds, how to study other people's minds. Right? So that's why, at first, you know, I, I wanted to be a clinician. I'm going to have people lay on the couch and, you know, I'm going to help them. <laughs> All right? You know, but what I've come to understand is actually I can study my mind and I'm probably best suited. Mm -hmm. And I can use introspection although that fell into disfavor in psychology, right? That was the beginnings of psychology with Wilhelm Wundt, right, in Germany. But we said it's not verifiable. 
And so we can't trust that. We moved on to logical positivism and, and we're in empirical science and we collect data. See, we the numbers. This is why we can't study Ilwan because what number are we going to put on Ilwan? <laughs> Zero. <laughs> the absence of nothing, right? So, yeah. And, and I don't need experimentation necessarily to tell me that this works. I can look inward and know that at night now I can more easily go to sleep instead of lamenting over all of the crazy things I did during the day where I didn't know how to stop myself. I didn't know how to pause and think before I move. I didn't plan before I went into that meeting that I knew from the last 10 meetings with my chair, right, that I had a problem in that meeting. I didn't say to myself, I'm about to meet with my Buddha. Okay. So that it could transform me before I went into the meeting and I could be spacious. And instead of running in my head, thinking that everything this person is doing is about attacking me, and thus I have to be on the defense in this meeting, and I have to attack them. Here's my Buddha. When the teacher is, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And so I can remain open in that meeting. That doesn't mean that one is a doormat, because we use wisdom. And this is what the threefold study cultivates in us, so that we are cultivating through meditation, through chanting, right? We are inquiring into human affairs and universal principles through scripture reading, scripture writing, and other such things. Okay, I'm not going to go through the whole list. And then, <laughs> and then choice and action, right? Heedfulness and other such things, and practicing those things. Right? There were whole lots of habits that I had to break and still have to break. And I put that on my, my heedfulness list. I'm going to work on that. I journal about things, and I see my patterns. I see the people that I always have problems with. I see the places I always have those problems. I see my know-it-allness over and over, ego coming in. Do it my way. It's the right way. <laughs> okay? I see all of that. And so I can sleep at night better and not wake up in the middle of the night and can't go back to sleep because all of those thoughts of, I shouldn't have said that, coming in my head. Okay, or anticipating with anxiety that meeting with my dean. Okay, I know what I need to do before I meet with my dean. Okay, my Buddha. Okay, so the the, the last thing, because because we're at the end, and if we could read together at the count of three, the founding motive that would be fantastic. So one, two, three. Today, with the development of scientific civilization, the human spirit, which should be making use of material things, has steadily weakened, while the power of material things, which human beings has stronger, conquering that weakened spirit 
and bringing it under its domination, humans therefore cannot help but be enslaved by the material. How would they avoid the turbulent sea of suffering in their lives? To is to lead all sentient beings who are drowning in the turbulent sea of suffering to a vast and immeasurable paradise by expanding spiritual power and conquering material power through faith in a religion based on truth and training in morality based on fact. So may we all choose to walk the path of sacred science, meaning realizing our Buddha nature, right? Being Buddhas, but also simultaneously being bodhisattvas, right? And in doing such, we will fulfill the founding motive. Thank you.